Listening to Down on High, where two millennial musicians talk about the cultural products that shape them. Today, we will be covering rather than two albums, a topic. This would be an extra credit assignment for the loyal listener. We will be talking about one hit wonders of the 2000s. We have both selected five one hit wonders. Greg, uh, I believe you have the first one hit wonder. Do you want to announce what it is? Yeah, I uh I picked Chasing Cars um by Snow Patrol. I I knew the song, I didn't know who it was by. I didn't know it was one hit wonder. I do want to describe a little bit too like what the criteria is. You and I looked up a list of one hit wonders from the 2000s and these are uh, all artists who at some point were in the top Billboard top 40 one time but never again. Uh, as we were looking through the list, there were some bands that and, and artists that we thought might be worth covering, or even that we have covered, including Muse. Um, it's not necessarily that they didn't have their own hits among their own sort of demographics, just that they didn't have major hits. Uh, but the songs that we picked for this list, I think, are like true one-hit wonders, where I have no idea, for the most part, what these bands are up to, or what these artists are up to, or they're even still doing things. But uh, Chasing Cars was a good example, because I think it encapsulated how a little bit uh surprisingly effete the list of music is it's it's a lot of like uh singer songwriter type stuff uh with no it's it's sort of hooky and whatnot uh chasing cars is um it's it has this sort of like jangling like one two one two guitar uh picking thing going um and it's sort of like it it sounds like a a song built for a um it sounds so so cinematic. so much like coldplay yeah that too <laughs> yeah coldplay yeah it it sounds like it's built for like a movie montage where like a character realizes that it's time to like stop being uh, uh i don't know to to be vulnerable and to you know i mean the song is literally it's the about, end of the movie thing yeah, yeah. it's the song is about like a um just going into love and um whatever wind and water themes diving in feet first not holding back greg no. following your heart uh, uh snow patrol a northern irish scottish rock band uh, released two independent albums in 1997 and 1998, then signed with Polydor in 2002. They achieved some modest success with their uh, Coldplay-esque power ballad run in 2002, but it wasn't really until 2006's Chasing Cars that they dented the American charts. Uh, this song was enormous. And there are a few interesting little uh, wrinkles, both about its release and about trends that were popular at that time. Uh, but just uh, to run the numbers, uh, this is allegedly, as of 2019, the most played song of the 21st century on UK radio, whatever's left of 
UK radio. I think there's a little more radio in the UK because they have their public broadcasting network. Uh, radio in the UK is interesting for that reason. Like for the longest time, the BBC and their their six different, uh, you know, BBC One, BBC Two. Uh, they had like there's like six BBC stations. These days they have Radio X and you know a number of different uh, independent operators. Um, and I shouldn't pretend to be an expert about the history of popular radio in the UK. Um, but anyway, uh, number six on the UK singles chart, number five on the US Billboard Hot 100. It spent a total of 166 weeks in the UK Top 100. And here's the interesting thing. It was only available as a physical entity for 14 of those weeks. So this is all digital downloads. Mm. Um it sold its millionth copy in 2013 uh, in the UK. In the US, it sold almost 4 million singles. This is all iTunes store stuff. Right. Um, the other interesting wrinkle is, a, I mean, I, I'm sure this is recent enough that everyone remembers it, but mashup, there was a pretty famous mashup of the police's Every Breath You Take and Chasing, char- chasing Cars in 2006 called every you chase uh <laughs> party ben and it's pretty good i remember hearing that and i probably enjoy that a little more than this um as you mentioned it's got a chiming guitar a la u2 or coldplay it's got a slow burn kind of steadily rising momentum uh by the time we get to the third chorus we get a chugging guitar you know not dissimilar from say the rhythm guitar and something like the scientist by coldplay um, you get, uh, those kind of like pop punk octave chords doing a little bit of lead in the final chorus. Very, very subtle. Um, uh, it, it seems to be a lot of pleading and yearning for something kind of nonspecific and general. Uh, we'll do it all, everything on our own. We don't need anyone. We don't need anything or anyone. I don't quite know how to say how I feel. Those three words are said too much. They're not enough. This, these are the general sentiments of the song. There's no real hook in this, and his melody doesn't really rise in the chorus. Mm. Um, I, I think and, what makes it successful is just that it's uh, maybe so um, broadly palatable. Uh, uh, right. So I, I think some of these songs that we're talking about uh, will be a little bit more alienating to, for some people, but this one, like... I, I can see Gen X and Boomer is just oh yeah that's one of my favorite songs. It's like so I don't know offensive. There's a world of difference between Yellow or The Scientist and this, and I really think if you have any problem, if you have any feeling at all for this that is like plus or minus one, <laughs> I think you really you want to blame Wonderwall. Because this song essentially exists because of what a song like Wonderwall created. Like, if the Britpop era was defined by these kind of strummy ballads, um, thinking things like Wonderwall, um, uh, End of the Century by Blur, um, songs like Better Man or Bitter... um, Pardon me, Lucky Man or Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. Then what came in its wake, the Travis, the Keen, uh, the, the Snow Patrol, the Coldplays, these bands sort of made their bones kind of doing 
like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of that that kind of thing do you think and i think like well i was just curious if you think it's that cynical i mean so this is from their fourth studio album in 2006 uh and it was written by the the lead vocalist so i um maybe that's not what you're suggesting but i but um like do you think this was made to be a hit or do you think this was like just a byproduct of internalizing those references? I don't necessarily think it's calculated. Okay. Um, but I, but I would say this: even if it were, that wouldn't be what's what's what I note about the song or what's important to me about the song. It doesn't bother me if you want to write a hit, which we'll talk about some songs like they sound like somebody tried to write a hit mm. on this list. What bothers me is that uh, it structurally, however, like, sound it is, it doesn't do, like, there are no moments, you know, you've talked about this, there are no real moments or hooks in the song. Um, I think the melody really ought to have risen a little bit in that chorus, uh, because, like, if we look back at the song Run, which was their first kind of power ballad, it, it's very close to Yellow. Uh, but it's pretty good. Like, there's some contrast between the verses and the chorus. You know, you get these sort of minor chords descending sequence in the verses, and then you get this sort of very major key, lift your lighters, wave your flags in the chorus. In this one, we kind of stay in beige from beginning to end, and we get aggressively beige (laughs) towards the end. Okay. Uh, But we still, you know, Manila... I guess vanilla. These are these are the words that come to mind. I mean, like I know you could say most of those things about Coldplay, right? Right. But second generation Coldplay is one generation removed from the generalness and the pleading of Chris Martin. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to take a post Coldplay like rock song. It's probably going to be Keen somewhere. Only we know, not Jason Cars. Sure. Uh, and uh, like uh, many songs on this list, I didn't necessarily pick it because it was um, my favorite, <laughs> but just because, no, uh, no. right, just because it was sort of interesting. Because if you if you had asked me if I knew of Snow Patrol, I would tell you no. Uh, but then when I was looking at the list and, and I listened to the song, I was like, I know that song. And I, this, yeah. This, this sort of classic one-hit wonder thing where like you don't even, a lot of these I didn't, couldn't tell you who the artist was, but I could probably sing along with part of it. Yeah, if I lay here, if I just lay here, will you lie with me? That's pretty. That's the part you remember. Yeah. Um, maybe if I remember it, that means it was a hook, but it certainly doesn't feel. It doesn't. Go, it goes down like, uh, like sugar-free apple cider or something. <laughs> you kind of just wish it was real apple cider. Uh, the second song we're going to cover. And this was one of my choices. This is Jimmy Eat World's The Middle. Arizona emo band, uh, their 1999 uh, third record, Clarity, was sort of a touchstone for the emo ba- uh, emo subset. Uh, influential for like more confessional. Uh, they self-financed the recording of this when they were dropped by Capitol Records uh, in the wake of the failure of Clarity as a commercial prospect. So they self-financed and re-signed with Capital, uh, uh, pardon me, not with Capital, uh, and lo and behold, they found themselves a great big hit single. 
this song exists sort of um this is sort of post blink 182 power pop pop punk it's got and you're going to notice that a lot of my choices on this list have similar <laughs> descriptions uh chugging palm muted verses and a distorted chorus a quiet loud dynamic you get probably the most familiar chords in the book 154 uh it sounds a bit like the cars a bit like cheap trick it's got a, a interesting guitar solo, kind of rockabilly-esque guitar solo in it. Uh, you get some light synths in the third verse, which is an interesting touch. Um, the the hook is huge. The everything, everything will be all right hook in the song. And, uh, I mean, it's just sort of a sunny, affirming, comforting ode to encouragement. It's a bit like a pep talk. Hey, don't write yourself off yet. Yet, don't worry what their bitter hearts are gonna say. Uh, it takes some time, little girl. You're in the middle of the ride. Everything will be just fine. Everything will be all right. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps we could attribute some of the success of the song to the post 9/11 <laughs> moment. Uh, the the group did actually uh, change the name of the album from which this this originates, Bleed American, to just self-titled Jimmy Eat World. Not dissimilar from how the Strokes removed New York City cops from Is This It in the wake of 9-11. Um, so I, I, would, I would have to imagine that you can at least respect the, the craftsmanship at stake in the middle. Would yeah. I be correct? I like the song. Um, unironically, it's fun. I, I think there's. Uh, um, I, I don't really care for pop punk. I, if this is sort of in that genre per se, yeah. Uh, but uh, one thing I do appreciate is that they just know how to have fun sometimes, and, and um, this would be a great example of that. Um, I, it, it's uh, the sentiment I find a little bit condescending, but. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah it's a fun song I don't know that I haven't well it is worth pointing out that where if you sort of trot the trajectory from the adolescent uh, sort of buffoonery of Green Day to the adolescent buffoonery and jackass adjacentness of Blink-182 you know you think about something like All the Small Things or What's My Age Again that would have come out two years prior to this and that was sort of the bubblegum version of Green Day, which was already pretty bubblegummy. This is sort of the midpoint between the Fall Out Boys and the My Chemical Romances of 2003 to 2006 and the adolescent sort of stuff of 1998, 1999. So it's probably more earnest than something like All the Small Things um, and probably a little more... Maybe slightly less adolescent. It's singing about an adolescent rather than being written by adolescents. Mm. Um, so, but it's so it's interesting that you describe it as fun. But I do think there's the sort of cheap trick esque power pop. It's pretty infectious, pretty pretty hard to knock. This is kind of what I w- want most of the time from my power pop. This kind of thing. Well, and, uh, and very that, e- easy to uh, to do a, a mediocre version. Very difficult to do a great version yeah. of this. 
And, and I just mean that if you don't listen to the lyrics, like it, it sounds like it might be some sort of celebratory thing, which I, I suppose it kind of mm-hmm. is if it's saying that like everything is going to be okay, that, that maybe that's something to celebrate. I just mean that like, uh, um, it, it's sort of like jumper in that way. It's just, <laughs> you're, it's, uh, <laughs> you're trying to convince someone to keep going. Uh, but there's just sort of a funness to it that, uh, makes you sort of forget that. Well, Greg, I don't know if you've forgotten, but that fateful day in September, we all needed to just keep going. And uh, Jimmy World was helpless, was here to help us get through it. The next song on our list was a choice of yours, Greg. Do you want to introduce this lovely, lovely, heartfelt song? <laughs> uh, so this is uh, um, Butterfly by Crazy Town. I, I, I can still sing the lyric uh, for the for the uh chorus it's a uh, sort of like an r&b like country western like more like not country western it's like a, <laughs> it's got like the cowboy kind of uh um riff through it i don't know how to explain it it's so it just sounds like it's um we, we talk a lot about like what pop and rock music was going to do in in order to respond to the rise of hip-hop and popular culture right and um one thing that it did for other artists is it sort of made them think more electronically and they made them pr- produce in different ways. It made them embrace pop. You know, if you look at like Fall Out Boy or like even like uh, Chris Martin uh, with Coldplay transitioned from doing like uh, band music to like walls of synth sound, you know, whatever it is. Uh, right, right. One option is to fuse, fuse, uh, pop and and in hip hop. I don't know anything about Crazy Town. I don't I think this is an example of a band that really is a true one-hit wonder band. I don't know if they kept going. I don't know what their deal is. I didn't really look into them. I just know that it was so ubiquitous that my mom loved the song. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh novel in a number of different ways. Los Angeles rap rock band Crazy Town um built this song a sample of an instrumental from the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Mother's Milk. Uh, the the band actually toured with the Red Hot Chili Peppers on their 1999 Californication tour. Um, they were supposed to be on OzFest in 2000, uh, but Shifty Shellac, uh, the notorious vocalist of the band, was arrested for throwing a chair. Um, Shifty is really the sort of heart of the band the uh and uh he's had somewhat of a troubled life before and after this song uh he spent time in institutions prior to the success of the song and after the success of the song their only notable song um he appeared on seasons one and two of dr drew's celebrity rehab and he appeared on two seasons of the follow-up spinoff, Sober House. Uh, just to... So I am not bringing this up to... I will I will make fun of the song, but I'm not making fun of him for... Because I actually probably think, other than Butterfly, maybe the most contribution he's made to popular culture and society is his participation in Celebrity Rehab. Um, I think that more or less did a did a lot to normalize substance abuse treatment. Um, but uh, on the program, for example, they they actually feature on the show 
under the supervision of his his uh, recovery sponsor, he scores drugs, returns to the rehab facility in a state of like crack induced intoxication, goes up to the roof and smokes the rest of his crack. Uh, on being filmed. Um, uh, uh, as of 2012, he was in a, uh, uh, he kind of has a rap sheet. Uh, he, there were some domestic abuse issues and he was put into a coma for a while. He has really had a hard time shaking the, the sort of monkey off his back, seemingly. Um, the, the track itself, I think it's pretty interesting, and I think it more or less derives half of its appeal from that Red Hot Chili Peppers sample, which is particularly kind of moody and mysterious, and then the other half of its appeal of that sort of sing-song hook. Um, it, they sort of layer these boom-bap drums underneath the sample. The sample actually has a trumpet line that sort of rises and then stops <laughs> as the sample cuts and then rises back up. Uh, so it is kind of a loose sample, but I think it works. Um, there are some whispered backing vocals in the chorus that are pretty effective. And it's sort of a sexual, kind of moody, uh, uh, erotic come on mixed with some confessional writing. Um, you know, the, a sample of the lyrics, sexy, 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 pretty little thing. Pierce nipple, Pierce, you got me sprung with your tongue ring, and I ain't gonna lie, cause your lovin' gets me high, so I keep you by my side, there's nothing I won't try. Butterflies in her eyes and looks to kill, time is passing, and I'm asking, could this be real? Cause I can't sleep, I can't hold still. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, be my butterfly, sugar baby. Um... Uh, the other notable thing about this is this is really the only true number one Hot 100 single from a new metal adjacent act. Korn, Limp Bizkit, uh, Deftones, System of Down, none of those groups cracked the, the, the pop charts the way this particular song did. So, in some ways, m- much like, say, Lisa Loeb's uh, Stay, it's sort of the not particularly representative of the scene it comes from or the stylistic movement it belongs to, but it is the most commercially successful iteration, at least from a, a uh, charting standpoint. Uh, the next song that I have chosen to cover is uh, Fountain of Wayne's Stacy's Mom from 2004. New York alternative rock band Fountains of Wayne, uh, one of the many, many, many uh, uh, alternative rock bands signed in the post-Nirvana moment. They are sort of loosely aligned with a subgenre of alternative rock, sometimes referred to as nerd rock. Uh, If Nirvana is the sort of inception point, then the follower would be Weezer, and in the wake of Weezer, you have a band like Fountains of Wayne get signed. Uh, they did have one moderately successful single in 1995, uh, at least on the modern rock charts, Sink to the Bottom, which I think is a pretty stellar uh, post-Nirvana, post-Weezer kind of power pop song with Nirvana dynamics. Um, and notably, Adam Schlesinger, uh, the singer and one of the songwriters in the band, 
did write the 60s pop homage, That Thing You Do, for the 1996 Tom Hank drama, That Thing You Do, which charted at number 41 on the Hot 100 and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song. Uh, So this guy kind of has a pedigree of being able to do these kind of homages (laughs) to power pop. Um, This song itself is very much an homage to the cars, just what I needed. Um, Right down to the sort of rhythmic uh, punches in the rhythm guitar that that are sort of lifted wholesale from just what I needed. The chorus itself, very big hook on this song, but it is, again... Almost wholesale, wholesale uh, a ripoff of just what I needed by the cars. Uh, it's very similar in presentation to something like Weezer. Uh, it's sort of cute and silly and comedic. Uh, and it seems to be about a sort of like teenage or preteen crush. Uh, the, the song has an actual linear narrative. Uh, Stacy, can I come over after school? Can we hang by the pool? Did your mom get back from her business trip? Is she there? Is she trying to give me the slip? You know, I'm not a little boy that I used to be. I'm all grown up now, baby, can't you see? And I know you think it's a fantasy, but since your dad walked out, your mom could use a guy like me. (laughs) Stacy's mom has got it going on. She's all I want. I've waited for so long. I mean, the funny thing about this song is it it, it sort of transcends transcends its uh, the the song of it. I I just it was such a cultural staple, like for like I think about like being in school and kids would sing it to other kids about their mom. Right, like, dude, no, your mom, your mom is hot. I want, <laughs> and um, everyone knew the song. Everyone, everyone I knew knew the video, the music video. This is like one of the last music videos I think was that I ever remember being talked about um cuz it yeah. Yeah, it features it's a some model at, at a poolside and something like that and yeah uh, it's a send up to fast times at ridgemont high right the 80s movie and uh yeah i just it, it's just the content that i find just so funny and um it was just so ubiquitous like like uh, it's wild yeah so uh Stacy's mom and the middle share a lot of DNA. Um, and they're not the only songs <laughs> of my choices on that list that share that same sort of uh, one, five, six, four chords with quiet, loud dynamics, chugging pop punk or power pop esque, you know, and then a great big sing along hook. Uh, there's, there, these are, we're not going to talk about every single song that's like that in the 2000s, but that was sort of a catnip to, uh, to my ears at the time, at least. And it's, I mean, it still is whenever I hear music like that. Um, the next song we're going to talk about is one of your choices. Uh, (laughs) do you want to, do you want to introduce this? See, I, this is why I picked it. I can hear the contempt in your voice. So much like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> much like Nickelback, everyone hates this song and to the point where it's like um uh almost like understood like it's like a sort of um what is it like uh um Battlestar Galactica there was like the song that like the Scions <laughs> couldn't sing or something this is how you know someone's human uh if they hate the song Bad Day by Daniel Powder <laughs> 
Porter, 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 Daniel yeah. Porter. Yeah, whatever. Something, something a feat like that. Um, yeah, I, I, just, you had a bad day. You're taking one down. You sing a sad song just to t- turn it around. You say you don't know. You tell me don't lie. You work at a smile and you go for a ride. You had a bad day. The camera don't lie. You're coming back down and you don't really mind. You had a bad day. Yeah, you can hear the melody just when I say the words like that. Yeah, uh, just like uh, just like a Nickelback song, but like everybody fucking hates this song. Um, and uh, I, I I guess I can see why, I, I, but like I don't know. It's not that. It's not so bad. It might have just been like overplayed in some sort of way, or like might have been a little bit too obvious. It, it, you know, like I don't know. It's a feat. It's like kind of silly. Um, We'll talk about another sort of effete musician who yeah. everyone hates. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know if I have much to say in it because, like, I, I almost imagine if someone's listening to this episode, the second they hear it in their head, they're like, fuck this, I'm out. I don't know what it is about the song that just really drives people nuts. Canadian singer-songwriter Daniel Porter um, auditioned for a number of different major label records and didn't get signed. Then his agent got him signed to a deal. Uh, this song initially appeared in a Coca-Cola commercial uh, in France. Um, uh, largely, the success of the song is because it was used uh, to sort of... It was used on American Idol whenever they were sending somebody off the island. Mm. You know, you're kicked off the show. So... Something to note about this time period is that there was a long stretch in between 2003 and 2005, 2006, where the only number ones we were getting, other than rap songs, were American Idol milk toast ballads. Songs like um, A Moment Like This by Kelly Clarkson and any number of Clay Aikens and guys like that. Um, and and so th- this song was... Although he never was an American Idol performer, the success of the song can largely be attributed to its use on American Idol. That was a huge commercial juggernaut. It was sort of like the brainchild of somebody like Clive Davis, who sort of bemoaned the loss of that kind of... He's not even talking about like classic singer-songwriter, but like Whitney Houston-style ballads where everything is put together by a team and you get this sort of industrial strength kind of singing, um, sort of weaponized melisma. Um, and, and this song sort of was a part of that phenomenon, whether it was ever, he was ever a performer on the show or not. Um, another interesting tidbit about that I think is... Um, you know, we've talked about some of the novel release strategies, whether it was the iTunes store or downloading. You know, there was a period of time in which non-traditional record stores or big box stores, in the 2000s, most people who bought a record bought it at a place, a big box store, like in the United States, that would mean Best Buy. They weren't going to, you know, a record store. It was just an end cap on an aisle <laughs> at Walmart. Um, but Barnes and Noble did start putting out uh, select releases, usually stuff like this, acoustic versions. You know, a good example of a Barnes and Noble release would be an all acoustic re-recording of Jagged Little Pill by <laughs> Alanis Morissette or Paul McCartney's Memory Almost Full. 
these sort of very pleasant, um, no edge sort of uh, coffee house fare. Yeah, that was a such a str- uh, th- strange thing that was going on because you could, you could go to Starbucks or Barnes Noble or whatever, and just get a CD while you're in the line to get a you get a five dollar coffee and a twelve dollar CD. That was just um, really bizarre. I remember like Nelly Furtado when she was more folksy. Um, she was like uh, you know a part of that. Just a lot of sort of yeah uh, folksy um, yeah songs like NPR core kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um. The song itself, this song, um, it is a mid-tempo piano ballad with strings, um, thirds, some harmonies in the chorus, some sort of very basic thirds, ha- uh, halftime drums. So instead of getting one, like, uh, get, uh, get, you're sort of getting, uh, get, uh, 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 get kind of drums. So it feel, it'll feel slower and kind of uh, groovier. Um the tone is encouraging and sweet, maybe saccharine. I think um, when you talk about this song and the song we're going to uh, cover later, my choice from this sort of adult contemporary fair, it almost feels like a parody of the kind of adult contemporary music I enjoy. You know, if you think about something like the Goo Goo Dolls or uh, Wonder Wall or something like that, this feels very much... An- it feels like a, a a facsimile of what's interesting or 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 comforting about that music. Interesting is probably not the right word for this kind of music because it rarely is. Uh, it's more sort of uh, um, at its best. Songs like this can be universal and per- and sort of feel personal. That's what a song like Wonderwall is able to do. Uh, it can feel. Like, it, it's about something specific without being about something specific. And it can sort of be um, pleasantly pleasantly endearing. Um, but the sort of, the formula kind of reaches its sort of nadir with something like this. Uh, I would even, I mean, even a song like Train... Uh, like drops of Jupiter, oh, I would, I, I really enjoy that song. Uh, <laughs> but something like this is like the way we talked about uh, how chasing, like, the scientist or like a photocopy of a photocopy of Coldplay's The Scientist. This is sort of like a third generation photocopy of something like Train. I think, at least from a production standpoint, that hook is sticky, but not for any of the reasons I wish it was. Um, it it's sort of grating the first time you hear it. That's what I would I would say about that one. It, um, it it does make me feel sort of sorry for him, uh, though, because I am sure there was some sincerity in developing this, and after all that time trying to get signed, and he finally has a song and it's a hit, and it's such a hit that it that people fucking hate it because they can't escape it. It's like the send off song for every reality TV show that blew up in the two thousands, right? Um. Ah oh, man, that's got to be tough. Uh, Living off that sink money, man. Living off the sink money. Yeah. It was the first song to sell two million digital copies in the in the United States as of two thousand six. Uh, the next song we're going to talk about uh, is a song called "The Reason" by a group uh, uh, calling themselves Hoobastank. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, this is an uh, Agora Hills, California alternative rock band. 
They had a modest success with their debut, I believe it was in 2002, with the single Running Away, but didn't really reach the apex of uh, commercial viability and uh, widespread notoriety until 2004 uh, with the power ballad The Reason. Uh, This uh, this is sort of a boilerplate modern rock song that's uh, sort of blended with a something akin to like the police's every breath you take. Um, it's got a sort of uh, looping guitar arpeggio throughout the two chord verses, and then the chorus comes in with those one six four five heart and soul chords. Uh, it does have some of the sort of gloomy, uh, downcast perspective of modern rock balladeers like Stained. You know, there, there's if you contrast this with something like the previous song, uh, there. The, the tone of it is sort of apologetic, regretful, pained, and it feels confessional. feels like a song about making amends. There's a heaviness to the presentation, despite the sort of milquetoast quality of the, the music itself. Um, I'm sorry that I hurt you. It's something I live with every day. And all the pain I put you through, I wish I could take it all away. I found out a reason for me to change who I used to be, a reason to start over new, and the reason is you. Number two on the Hot 100, nominated for Song of the Year mm-hmm. at the 2006 Grammys. 2005 Grammys, sorry. How do you feel about the reason in 2022, Greg? 2023? <laughs> in the way that people hate Bad Day, I hate this song. I, oh, that's it, preposterous. It was inescapable and as and I know this is not necessarily related to the song itself, but the thing that I always remembered is when we would play music and talk about like, oh, we're gonna have bands and whatnot, we we would talk about what's the name of the band gonna be? And you're like, <laughs> as long as it's not as bad as Hoobastank, the worst <laughs> band name ever. <clears throat> um, that is pretty awful. I, yeah. yeah, and I, I think I saw a clip once of them being interviewed and asked about like where the fuck did you come up with that name? And they're basically like, oh, yeah, it's awful. I don't think they even gave an explanation. It was just sort of like a, just a junk work they threw out there. But uh, I, I, I don't know. This this song um, maybe is because I didn't watch reality show like most of America was at the time. I mean, I do now because I'm a trash person. But like, I didn't, I wasn't inundated by Bad Day. I was inundated by this song. And uh, even just hearing it now is a, a little bit triggering. I'm just like, it's it, it's it's so disappointing. Um, and it's like the sentiment I find is so thin and unconvincing. Uh, and, and it and I think that because of that, it makes the things like the 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 chime sounding guitar strumming and the fake strings and all this other stuff just become that much more apparent and feel that much more cynical because of uh, just how uh, insincere I think this comes off when it's this squeaky clean. Uh, I have a lot more affection for this song than you do. Yeah. Uh, I would would say this is more or less the 2004 version of something like, uh, like keep on loving you or, um, roll with the changes like it is a true 
like power ballad. Um, I'm just looking up. Um, I just want the name Ario Speedwagon. These guys are very much akin to a sort of workaday power ballad band like Ario Speedwagon for the 2000s. I don't think they're particularly convincing when they attempt to do modern R A W K rock. Like, however much they might have some passing affiliation with new metal or more aggressive kinds of modern rock, I never found them particularly convincing in that mold. I think they were far more suited to doing this kind of plodding mid-tempo pop rock. Um, and I do think that, that that single from their debut, Running Away, it, and this are are pretty competent. I mean, they sort of hit all the notes you would expect to hit. And I think that sort of chiming guitar arpeggio is pretty good. Uh, the chorus soars. It's got the those great big harmonies. The strings are canned and a little cheesy. Uh, that is not the cherry on top. It is sort of the... Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that th- That is not a worthwhile production choice. Uh, it's sort of... It just sort of like generic um but i think the song itself is pretty sturdy you have chosen a slightly more interesting choice for number seven on our list of when it wonders yeah i chose uh tattoos all the things she said um i really liked the song when it came out i still like it it's still a banger it's sort of like a techno dance pop thing um euro dance yeah right and it was most and it, 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 so, according to ChatGPT, uh, the song was a massive commercial success, reaching number one in over 20 countries, including the United <laughs> Kingdom and Australia. It was also a top 20 hit in the United States, where it gained popularity through radio play and exposure on MTV. So, um, one thing I think that was really interesting about this was it was a song about sort of like forbidden lesbian love. And apparently, they continued this, uh, this, this image for a couple years. Um, but when they were actually asked about it, like, are you lesbians? They're like, no, it's just a, like a marketing gimmick just for a shock value. Right. But they said they were supportive of LGBT, um, uh, people, uh, which is notable, especially considering that they're Russian, um, homophobia is like a, like, I'm pretty sure it's illegal to be gay in Russia. Um, mm. so, uh, it is sort of uh, uh, interesting in that sense, and and you know there are some people who criticize them for um, for portraying themselves in that way if it was not honest. But then on the other hand, there are people who were saying that it was a sort of a a, a, a moment for normalizing and, and putting a visibility for um, lesbian people and uh, and whatnot. Uh, I just really like the song. It's like it's really it's. Um, super catchy it's got a, a synth solo which you don't hear in a lot of pop music uh which i think was a lot of fun and um it's just all around a, a, a fun song what do you think of it um well i think it's interesting you kind of you kind of touch on uh something that was prevalent at that moment like probably this is not the mo- like for example i remember watching this track and the follow-up single be performed at the 2003 MTV Movie Awards. And um, and I remember the video. And both of those kind of have that um, queer-baiting kind of thing. Or maybe that's not even the right word. I think it's actually just like... Uh, 
eroticizing or exoticizing lesbianism well i think it it would be clear baiting Um, i mean that's what they call it now when something is sort of um insincere or or cynical about trying to capture a maybe well it wasn't maybe not quite that's what i mean though it doesn't actually that's what i mean though lesbian audience it's not actually it doesn't it captures a male teenager audience right yeah good point that's the actual intended recipient of the lesbian sort of um so I think it's kind of two things at once. Like th- this isn't the most prominent example. I think of things like uh, the the kiss between Madonna and Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, where you're sort of uh, it, it's sort of fetishizing it a little right. bit. I do think, on the one hand, it it was positive in the sense that it normalizes, but I think it's maybe the other thing that's going on is it's uh, played for shock oh, rather yeah. than. Rather than sort of, uh, so it's a mixed bag, right? Yeah, and and they admitted uh, that much. They even, I think, they used the word for shock value. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I you know it's kind of like uh, I don't know what the net uh, positive or negative on that is, but uh, um, I think the song. Neither do I. I think the song was interesting enough on its own, anyway. Um, and- yeah, no, as a pop song, it's, I mean, the synth work is great. There's a synth hook in there. And like you mentioned, it's sort of a pained, uh, sort of, um, not dissimilar from, from the tonality of something like Linkin Park or Evanescence. There's sort of like a, it's not quite paranoia, but it's like, uh, there's a sort of desperation, desperate quality to the the tone of the song. Um, I'm in serious shit. I feel lost. If I'm asking for help, it's only because being with you has opened my eyes. Could I ever believe such a perfect surprise? And I'm all mixed up, feeling cornered and rushed. They say it's my fault, but I want her so much. Want to fly her away where the sun and the rain come in over my face and wash away all the shame. All the things she said, all the things she said running through my head. Yeah, I mean, as a uh, sort of boilerplate Europop number, it's better than most. And I think the follow-up single is probably just as good. Um, they're not going to get us. Uh, not like, a, they were a, more or less a manufactured pop band. Oh. Uh, the members auditioned to be in the group. Uh, their 2001 Russian language album achieved success in Eastern Europe, and then in 2002, uh, Interscope put out their English language debut. Debut. Uh, this is the kind of song that I I think kind of disappears in into the time. Uh, I'm not sure there's anything about it that sort of makes it legible or um, timeless. It feels very much of 2002 to me. So. Uh, if you weren't around back then, this is exactly the kind of song you probably wouldn't have encountered in today's landscape. Fair. Uh, the next song that I have chosen for the list is a song by The Darkness. I believe in a thing called Love. A Suffolk, England glam rock band. This song uh, hit number two on the UK singles chart. We're sort of cheating with this one because this did not... Um, chart in the hot 100 it did go to number one at modern rock uh this is a gold single in the united states sold sold over 600,000 copies all digital downloads of course 
Um, in the UK, uh, it was uh, it was much more successful. Uh, they did open on Metallica's 2003 Summer Sanitarium tour. Uh, the the song itself um, it features sort of loud hanging power chords, a la Thin Lizzy's "The Boys Are Back in Town." It's got a spot on pre-chorus building tension for the giant glammy falsetto hook. It's got these sort of awe backing vocals that are harmonized. It's got this sort of spot on guitar solo, very much akin to something like Slash from Guns N' Roses uh, after the first chorus and then a longer guitar solo after the second chorus. Um, The lyrics are almost entirely rockisms, you know, just sort of. Can't explain all the feelings you're making me feel. My heart's in overdrive and you're behind the steering wheel. I want to kiss you every minute, every hour of every day. You got me in a spin, but everything is A-OK. I think the chorus is... What that chorus reminds me of most is a Phil Collins song from 1989. Um, uh, Um... the Phil Collins song I'm thinking of is uh, Something Happened on the Way to Heaven. The way the bass comes in in the chorus, you know, the, there's just like three or four chords in the verses. Sort of bum, 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 da, 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 da. And there's a little tail riff. But when we get to the chorus, there's this, this riff that comes in that's like inescapably catchy, like... So it's sort of mirroring a sort of one four uh two five chord progression, which is not a there are notable examples of where those chords are used, but typically those chords are a little thickly sweet for a pop rock song. Um other notable examples I can think of would be a song like Puddle of Mud, She Hates Me, or um uh, there are a few examples, but just not many. But the way it's used here, where they they have this sort of walking up, ascending bass line, I think it's just about, like, I'm super jealous of what they were able to do in that chorus. Hmm. From a pop rock perspective, it's sort of, like, perfect. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I feel like this band is has been sort of reduced to a joke. Well, were they reduced to a joke, or... Did they like never claw their way out of the joke? Because I I remember the music video and I and just I like I think it's notable and interesting. But there's this sort of like insane falsetto that he's singing in. Uh, yeah, the music video had like it was sort of like space themed, like as if like a eighties octopus. Hair, yeah, yeah, 80s hair metal band was like in some sort of like. 80s space movie like b movie and is it, it seemed very um like a novelty at the time and, and that was part of the fun but maybe maybe if you sort of blast out of the gates being that sort of silly raucous band known for this one song I, I don't know how you claw your way out of that even if you intend to yeah i mean if you listen to permission to land the debut record that this comes from there are four or five like nine out of 10 power pop hard rock songs on there. Like as good as anything from a record from any of the great hair metal records of the late days, um, as good as anything on a Bon Jovi record or, or something akin to that. Um, I think the unfortunate thing is the reason probably the band wasn't able to transcend the joke 
is because their second record was so undercooked. Their second record was probably, I've heard it described as one of the most expensive records ever made. Mm. They made it with Roy Thomas Baker of Queen fame. I have rarely been so disappointed by a record as I was by the second Darkness record, One Way Ticket to Hell and Back. Um, like, there is a basically a retread of, I believe, in a thing called Love, uh, called One Way Ticket to Hell and Back, um, that actually features chords very similar to the next song I chose on the list. Um, but the other thing I think is notable about The Darkness, other than their failure to follow up their debut and their debut single, is that the guitars on Darkness Records and the guitars on pop punk records and the guitars on modern rock records in this time period all sound the same. I think with digital production, something I notice about all these different kind of subgenres of the rock heading is that all of it kind of starts to get meshed together. Uh, I'm not sure if, if that's uh, just a result of, you know, the production, uh, be everything being done in Pro Tools, but uh, listen to the guitars on something like My Chemical Romance's uh, uh, breakout record, and then listen to The Darkness, and then listen to the Hoobastank record. These are all separate subgenres, but they all kind of have the the same kind of guitar sound, which is weird, and I'm not sure exactly why that is, uh, but it is something that just just something I find interesting about the time period. It all starts to... Also, I would point out that from a recording perspective, as much as I love a lot of the, the rock records that we're talking about here, everything is blown out. Uh, there is almost no dynamics in in a song like I Believe in a Thing Called Love. Like, if you look at this thing at the waveform, it's like brick. It's a brick. It's all on 10 the whole time. It's compressed within an inch of its life. So the unfortunate thing about asking people to revisit these things or suggesting that maybe there's something to revisit is that the records sound like shit. Um, they're made to be listened to on earbuds and on laptop speakers. Uh, not on a turntable, right. not on uh, an expensive stereo, uh, not necessarily in a nice car stereo. Part Part of what's going on there at that time was... Um, I've listened to a lot of music producers and they have these sort of, uh, I don't know, like maybe tautologies. Like they, they sort of understand that there's a rule, like everything has to be produced this way. Things should be compressed. It should be at this frequency. It should be this. You should, you should shape the EQ like this. Like it, it becomes pretty rigid. And uh, I think that's... Um, I, I, I think that's to the detriment of, of the sort of liveliness of a lot of rock bands. It makes sense maybe for some like rap or electric music, uh, electronic music or whatever it is. But uh, I, I think that it, it pulled out a little bit of the magic from that sort of thing. The other thing too is I think about um, guitar gear in the 2000s became really standardized too. Um, yep. Everyone wanted the DS1 distortion pedal by Boss the tube screamer for their overdrive, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever it was. Right. So it's like, uh, they all play Marshall stacks, right? Uh, so, Gibson's through a Marshall stack. Yeah, yeah, they all do. So, so 
uh, I think that was part of it. I think that sort of coming up, re- uh, redesigning the boutique sound um, became um, a, a sort of a, a, a response to uh, that later. But uh, yeah, at the time, like everyone wanted, a, I don't know, a, a PRS and a DS1 and Tube Screamer on a Fender Twin or you know, whatever it was, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, the next song on the list uh, is a track co- uh, called Ocean Avenue by the band Yellow Card from 2003. Jacksonville, Florida pop punk band. Um, this song sold 2 million in the U.S. It peaked at number 37 on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, lead guitarist and, and co-writer Benjamin Harper said... Ocean Avenue is this place where we used to hang out in Jacksonville. Instead of talking about a girl, it's talking about a scene and a feeling that we want to get back to hanging out and writing before we move to California. Uh, Much like some of the other sort of power pop adjacent and pop punk adjacent songs on the list, this features chugging chords, palm muted guitar chords in the verses and a distorted chorus. Uh, Interestingly enough, this does feature a pretty prominent violin part in the chorus. Uh, this band had a uh, member who played violin on every song. Um, uh, th- it features harmonized guitars to give the second verse some differentiation. It's got a spot-on bridge, uh, which is the only section of the song that doesn't feature the three-chord revolving sequence, um, five, six, four. Uh, essentially, all the verses in the chorus just revolve around this sort of five, six, four-chord sequence. Uh, it's got double time punk drumming, and the tone is sort of longing and nostalgic, uh, sort of trying to get back to the way things were. Yeah, I mean, as far as songs that kind of disappear into the memory hole, uh, this might be one of them, but I think this one would be worth revisiting. It's so punchy, it's so anthemic, it's so sort of uh, spot on and pitch perfect as far as like what a what a sort of pop guitar pop song would sound like in 2003. I remember the video getting massive play on MTV's TRL program. Do you remember this song at all? Yeah, I do. The reason I picked uh, this song uh, is more for the band, really, because, um, so, you know, one of the one-hit wonders we've talked about were probably almost nobody's favorite band. Not not necessarily by, by rule, but, like, that's sort of how one-hit wonders go, is, like, they have a very small fan base, you know. Like I remember listening to the guys who wrote that "I'm Blue Abadi Abadai" song. They're like, "Oh, do you? Does it bother you that that's the only yeah, song yeah. people know?" And, and I'm sure they asked it in a gentle way. And uh, they're like, "No, it's fine. Like we play like a whole set. And nobody knows our music until we play that one song. But everyone <laughs> sings along. And it's fun." So, <clears throat> what I find striking about Yellow Card is um, on this on the particular list that we chose. Uh, they're they are a band who I think there are some people who that was their favorite band. Um, yeah, and uh, and and I they may not have had other top forty hits, but they did have um, albums that people appreciated and songs that people appreciated. And this was sort of like their their commercial peak. But um, my understanding is that they I, I I knew people who really liked Yellow Card. Yeah. No, the 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 follow-up record to this, I think it's called Lights and Sounds. It had a single called Light Up the Sky, which I think is about as good as Ocean Avenue. It just their moment was over. 
uh, from a zeitgeisty perspective. You know, by the way, Eiffel 65, the band that released yeah. uh, Blue, Dubba Dee, Dubba Die, there is another song on their debut record that's pretty good called Deep Down. <laughs> I would suggest people give the If you enjoy Blue, give that one a chance. Anyway, uh, I think... Uh, I Why is it that Yellow Card is not um, Fall Out Boy? Um, I don't... Maybe it's because the band didn't have quite as much personality and because they didn't have the kinds of non-musical tabloid fare that Fall Out Boy did. You know, somebody like Pete Wentz had a sort of cult of personality around him. You know, there was also some photos of him that leaked uh, of him flashing his genitals. Uh, He dated other famous people. And the guys in Yellow Card were a workaday band. uh, there is a really fascinating interview. You know, the um, Jim from Jimmy World, one of the other acts we covered on this list, he did, he has a YouTube channel where he um, interviews basically other guys in pop punk and indie bands. And he interviewed the guy from Yellow Card, uh, who is now solo. The band broke up some time ago. And um, interestingly enough, as far as Ocean Avenue goes, you know, th- that... That interview is kind of painful to listen to uh, because he seemingly has struggled to adapt to what happens to my life after Yellow Card. Um, but what he mentions about Ocean Avenue is that when he, you know, he's able to go out and play acoustic tours once a year or something like that. And, it, and because of that, I mean, the hook of the song in some ways, other than the chorus, is the, the strumming pattern of the palm muted power chords. Dun 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 dun. Um, you can't really do that and sing it at the same time. I mean, at least he can't, and I don't think I could either. It's a pretty distinctive rhythm. Um, so that's really all I can think of that might be notable about this song, other than how good it is. Um, yeah, I saw the final. Go ahead, go ahead. I saw a video by a YouTuber named Drew Gooden who talks about it being his favorite band. Um, but that, um, uh, he's like tried to see them or, or the main guy, I don't know his name. Um, and he, he found that they were sort of like stuck in the moment and he's even gotten, um, like sort of copy striked from featuring like small snippets of yellow card songs. And he basically, you know, this is just one man's opinion, but he was basically like this. They like, will not, um, they refuse to like be something new and um or, or or to adapt you know kind of what you were getting at and so like it's it's striking to me that you heard him say that in an interview and at least one person is intuiting that on his own just by being a fan and um i i kind of feel for people in that position because again as i've mentioned many times uh, i'd love to have a hit song like ocean avenue um but I would, be, uh, uh, and to to be able, you know, if it meant playing it for twenty plus years, and that was the only thing I was known for, it would still be a blessing. But man, the the in, the the feeling of it's almost better to never write a hit at all than to than to not uh, know where to go afterward. I mean, I think about this with like athletes too. It's like, what do you do with your life after right. after your time has passed? It's got to be. Worse than developing a skill set and working a nine to five in some ways. I don't know. So the singer from MXPX, Mike Herrera, has a podcast where he, again, another person who interviews 
lead singers of pop punk bands and emo bands. He did an interview with one of the former members of Yellow Card, which is really interesting. I mean, if you enjoy interband like drama and tabloid fare, which I sometimes do, um, uh, it's episode 322 with Ben Harper of Yellow Card. If you want to get into the drama of what happens to a pop rock band after they have a hit single three albums later, <laughs> and nobody's getting along, and how he got kicked out of the band. I mean, I would highly recommend checking that out just for fun. And then go back and watch the interview uh, on uh, Jim from Jimmy World's YouTube channel. So there, there is more fun to be had with Yellow Card, both uh, some other notable songs, probably, and also some of the, uh, the drama surrounding the band. Uh, the final song we're going to talk about... Uh, is You're Beautiful by James Blunt. Hampshire, England, singer-songwriter, former British Army reconnaissance officer James Blunt. I forgot uh, about James that. Blunt got his... <laughs> uh, James Blunt got his big break when he played at an Austin hotel during South by Southwest in 2003. Uh, producer, singer-songwriter Linda Perry who wrote songs for artists like Pink, uh, saw him and offered him a deal with her Atlantic imprint. Um, interestingly enough, Bex, the producer of Beck's uh, Loser, uh, Tom Rothrock, um, he produced uh, uh, James Blunt's debut album. Um, uh, 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 the song sold like... 600-some thousand copies in the UK. Uh, it sold over 3 million copies in the United States. Uh, it became the first... Now, this is an interesting distinction. I found this on the Wikipedia page. The first non-urban, whatever urban means, maybe... <laughs> uh, yikesy. <laughs> the first non-black person or American Idol song to reach the, the top spot on the Billboard Hot 100... Since Nickelback's How You Remind Me in 2001. Uh, so it is a string-laden acoustic ballad with a, an acoustic guitar and piano. It is sweet and aching and self-pitying. And it is about a misconnection, Greg. She caught my eye as I walked on by. She could see from my face that I was fucking high. And I don't think I'll ever see her again, but we shared a moment that will last till the end. You're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, it's true. I saw your face in a crowded place, and I don't know what to do, because I'll never be with you. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, you know, we talked about the lineage from uh, Wonderwall to Yellow to chasing cars and i think the next song down that lineage is something like this this is pretty pretty offensive <laughs> well um yet it was a hit this is so when we're talking about bad day this is obviously what i was getting toward uh with like songs everyone fucking hates but one thing i think of note and is uh apparently james blake is on twitter and 
he he like replies to people who like tell him that his music is shit and he will even interject himself into conversations and be like, well, at least he didn't write one of the worst songs ever. Like you're beautiful. <laughs> um, so he's got like a good sense of humor about it. I mean, that's worth something, I guess. Um, I, 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 I don't care for this song, but I don't, I, I guess I'm not as bothered by it because again, much like bad day, I probably wasn't subjected to it as ubiquitously as maybe a lot of other people were. Um, you know, it's interesting to compare this to some, like, for example, in 2003, I think is when a song like, um, Collide by Howie Day. Do you know that song? Um, I might know it if I hear it. it yeah. So that's another like strummy acoustic Wonderwall-esque ballad with one, five, six, four chords. Why is that song not offensive, but ignorable? And this song offensive and difficult to ignore? Well, I think it's because this song does actually have a hook. I do think the chorus of this song is memorable. Um, I just think there's almost nothing to differentiate it from the more interesting songs that predate it. The chords are stock. Um, I think I think it's actually to the song's detriment that it's memorable. I think that's the biggest problem here. If it was sort of uh produced differently if it was produced like a rock record instead of like a uh schmaltz fest mm. i think it would probably be like more ingratiating but it's produced like a in a like serious way it feels serious i think that's what makes it so ugly it feels like it's momentous when it should feel smaller stakes or something, I don't even know how to. <laughs> it's it's saccharine. It's just like a little bit too, um, like it maybe thinks it's more profound or clever or interesting than it really is, and so it gives it the sort of swelling yeah. uh, production that it, uh, it doesn't maybe deserve, um, and maybe would be better suited unearned. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's probably the way to describe the tone of the production. <laughs> Like they breathe life into it as if it's uh, uh, earth shattering, when in reality it's kind of mundane. And at least he goes for the high notes in the chorus. Like that's probably why it's memorable from a construction standpoint. But uh, yeah, I can't think of very many like British rock, British singer songwriter tracks that I find less palatable. I don't know. So, I'm not trying to be that guy who doesn't like it because it's popular, but I no, think in no. this case, but I think in this case it might be. It, it definitely. Mo there are a lot of things that hurt the song. I'll put it that way. <laughs> but but I I guess what we can say is like, or at least I can say it, and probably you too, is I don't have any vitriol for James Blake in the same way that I might. No. no. Um, other musician. It's just it, it just it just sucks, and that's fine. I think it'd be interesting if we treat this list of ten like uh, like an album and pick one that we wish never happened and one that we would say oh uh, interesting deserves okay. uh, uh, some some longevity. What is the one hit wonder that we would send up to a first time listener? Uh, send up for the ages, and what is the one wonder that we've addressed that we would delete from memory? Yeah, so I'll go. Greg, go ahead. Which yeah, um, I I think. Uh, um, 
I, I, I think the song that I like the least is probably going to be Bad Day. No, sorry, The Reason. The Reason. I, yeah, I don't, I, I, I just, I... I just don't like the song. I I I think it's um much like you're beautiful or bad day or whatever it is like some of these sort of anonymous um sentiments of just like oh I love and it's forlorn and and um you know like it's just it seems so meaningless. It seems like the kind of thing that you say to someone when you've like fucked up and you're like you don't want your girlfriend to break up and I'm like no no you're the reason I'm going to I'm going to be a better you know fuck that. It's, and it's just an annoying song. Um, the song I think is actually really interesting and other people should hear, especially because, like you said, it will, I think, get lost uh, to time is All the Things She Said. So it's a fun song. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, I think the cardinal sin of a one-hit wonder is that you buy the record or you spend time with the record and you find out that's the only song that sounds any good. And there are no other songs that sort of meet the the high watermark. So, in the case of the darkness, I would say, if you've never heard "Love Is Only a Feeling" or "Growing on Me" or "Get Your Hands Off of My Woman," then you should, because they're all pretty much as good as "I Believe in a Thing Called Love." Uh, this band is not a is not a you know they have other cool songs on that debut album. Uh, there's there's filler on there, but they have four or five like as good as any other glam rock that you've heard. Uh, but I think probably if there is an artist on this list that like you could listen to their their one hit and find that there's some depth below that they don't really deserve the distinction of being a one hit wonder. It's probably Jimmy World. Um, that band has a pretty dense catalog. They're a pretty respected band. Um, I would I would highlight one of their later work. Um, uh, they have a song called "You Are Free." Uh, they have a song called "Sure and Certain." I think this is a band that, if you want to dig into a band that has a a, a pretty, uh, they're a long-standing band with a deep catalog, a deep bench. Jimmy Eat World is the one. So I'm going to select the middle as one to send up to a first-time listener. And as far as one to get rid of. I can't say it's chasing cars because I do like the final straw album that they put out before that, the album from which chasing cars originates. I think final straw is pretty good. As much as I dislike that song, that's not an awful band. Um, yeah. To delete from memory. Well, I don't like bad day. <laughs> I don't like it, but I would much rather hear bad day than you're beautiful. And I have tried to listen to James Blunt's catalog looking for other gems, and I haven't found any. So I'm going to take out James Blunt's You're Beautiful. No, thank you. So you have been listening to Down on High. This was a diversion episode. We will be back next week with two records from the 2000s. 